It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name is Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-host Michael Steinel. Hey Natalie and how are all listeners out there? And Kay Winnegal. Hi all, hi listeners. We're really excited to share the news that BZE has won yet another award. This time, the award for Best International Energy and Environment Think Tank at the 2018 Prospect Think Tank Awards. This was in recognition of the report Rethinking Cement. BZE has dedicated the award to treasured BZE volunteer Jennifer Bates, who was tragically killed in a road accident. The dedication is in memory of her inspiration and passion for the environment and for her amazing commitment to tackling climate change. The award's really a really timely reminder of BZE's groundbreaking works in all facets of the necessary transition to zero carbon usage. While Australia is finally gradually coming to grips with the stationary energy transition that BZE promoted more than 10 years ago, BZE is meanwhile looking ahead to other areas of decarbonisation of our economy. So moving on to our discussion for today, we're delighted to have Mark Bretherton join us in the studio. Mark's the media manager for the Clean Energy Council, which released its annual Clean Energy Australia report in June. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Natalie. Always a pleasure to be with an internationally award-winning think tank. Congratulations on the award, for sure. Thanks very much. So, look, most of our listeners would have heard of the Clean Energy Council, but with the incredible range of institutions and organisations that have sprung up around... Yeah, these issues, it can get quite confusing. So could you please reiterate for us just what is the Clean Energy Council and what what's its role? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. There's a lot of uh, organisations in this uh, area at the moment. We're probably the easiest way to think about the Clean Energy Council is that we're the industry body. So we're a bit like the Real Estate Institute of Victoria or, or someone who represents the master builders or that kind of thing. So we have um, more than 500 uh, member companies. Uh, so, you know, many of those range from uh, mum and dad solar installers right up to some of the large uh, sort of uh, multinationals like GE and so on. So uh, a lot of companies that are really engaged in this space. We also um, have more than 5,000 installers uh, basically responsible for putting solar power on people's roofs and that kind of thing as well. Does that mean it's mainly solar-based? Uh, no, we, we're pretty much everything. So the uh, we sort of we're split into two parts. So part of what we do is is the policy and advocacy development. So we we basically work with governments of all stripes and sizes and, and levels, uh, developing policy and advocating those policies. Uh, and the second part is kind of like a, a quasi regulatory function for the solar installers. So making sure that the people who are up on people's roofs uh, are qualified to do the job and, and are going to install um, solar at a high high degree of technical um, you know capacity, I guess. So you're a very important group then. 
Oh, look, you know, I, I, I don't want to blow around Trump, but I feel like we uh, we do some good work. I've been there for eight years now, and, and I think there's some fantastic stuff that we do for sure. I think, uh, so when I started, uh, there was probably maybe 30 or 40,000 solar panels, you know, across the entire country, um, sets of solar panels. And, you know, that's now grown to almost uh, t- 2 million. So it's um, a massive change. Mm, world leading. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the number of wind turbines is, is quadrupled in that period as well. So, you know, a lot of big changes in the system that are starting to happen. So the Clean Energy Australia report that that's come out recently, what is that? Sure. I mean, it's basically a yearbook. So we've produced it since 2009. Uh, it's all the stats and the facts and figures uh, of renewable energy from the year that was. We tend, It's more sort of looking back than it is looking forward, I suppose. So we don't really get the crystal ball out too much. We mostly look at what's happened. Um, it's, it's a whole bunch of, uh, you know, uh, trends and, and sort of and things from the year that was, I suppose. Everything from, um, you know, the number of solar and wind farms that have gone in. Uh, you know, storage is now a big part of the mix as well, uh, you know, f- through jobs and investment and that kind of thing too. So the report shows that in 2017, renewables hit an all-time high. 16 large-scale solar plants projects were completed. 50 large-scale wind and solar are under construction and they present a $50 billion investment and about 6,000 jobs. Has that changed dramatically since the previous report? That is a very good question, uh, and the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, it's amazing uh, the change that we've seen just in the last sort of eighteen months uh, since I've been at the Clean Energy Council. Things have been up, things have been down, things have been sideways. Uh, there's a lot of frustrations. Obviously, the political um, sort of side of things has been mm. uh, challenging at times. Uh, you know, we had a couple of years where you know Tony Abbott was Prime Minister. He didn't wasn't a massive fan of the wind and the solar. I think, mm. as everyone noted, uh, it's probably an understatement um, right there. But you know, the the, um, the the renewable energy target was the big policy uh, that we were sort of having a big argument about with Tony when he was Prime Minister. Uh, we cut a deal at the end of um, a long and long and sort of frustrating process where I think a lot of people lost their jobs, uh, confidence in the industry dropped dramatically, and that took quite a long time to rebuild. Uh, and that has really just started to bear fruit kind of like 18 months uh, a year ago. And it was probably only two years we were actually wondering, you know, is this industry going to start sort of, you know, uh, flourishing again soon or are we going to be sort of uh, in another kind of hole but uh, everything is sort of blazing there's records tumbling all over the place um, investment is the highest it's ever been there's more projects under construction than there have ever been and I mean people often talk about the iconic snowy hydro scheme in New South Wales uh, which was a huge nation building you know scheme which took 25 years to get up um, the number of projects that we're building uh, basically in about a two to three year period is you know, more capacity in terms of generation than Snowy Hydro, um, the whole scheme over 25 years. So it's, it's a massive uh, change that we're seeing in our energy system right now. Yeah, it reminds me of Utopia, actually. That- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, so moving along. So of those um, 16 large-scale projects that Kay mentioned, um, the summary mentions that you've, there's four of those were solar plants and five wind farms. Is that correct? And what what were the other eight projects? Um, there's a bit of bioenergy in the mix as well. Uh, it's it's a bit harder to, to keep track of bioenergy. Uh, it's often off grid and so on. And um, and you know when, when things are connected to the grid, they're a lot easier to track. And so you know a lot of the bioenergy projects that are built are you know combined heat and power things like when you have you know like agricultural waste or sugarcane waste up in North Queensland. 
and that kind of thing. Um, and so sometimes they're a bit harder to, to keep track of. They're a bit smaller than, than a lot of the other projects that you see being built. So, um, like, for example, I think the, the Ararat Wind Farm was by far the largest project that was uh, finished last year. That was you know, 240 megawatts or something, which I know that megawatts don't necessarily mean a lot to people, but it was it was a very big wind farm. Um, and then the largest solar farm was up in, in North Queensland. There's a, a really interesting project going up there where, where an old gold mine is being converted into uh, both a solar power plant and then is a pumped hydro plant being built too with the old mine pits so they, mm. so they can kind of like... Great concept. Really fantastic. And I mean, I, I think this is really, really, really great when you sort of see old, you know, like mines, which, you know, basically big holes in the ground and people using them for really sort of positive things like that, you know, whether it's, you know, you're seeing it overseas as well where people are converting old mines into, mm. you know, whether it's a solar plant or, or whatever. Is that the one that got some of the NAIF funding? Um, I'm, I, yeah, the actually, you're absolutely yeah. right. Actually, yeah, recently, um, yeah, there was the first major project to get funded, under which was the- actual a, a, a bit of a diversion here, but a, a huge joy because uh, obviously we all know that Adani's trying to get a billion dollars of the NAIF money, but um, so far we've stopped that, and this was the first NAIF money to come out, and it was the renewables project, so it was really exciting. Yeah, that sort of that fund up in, in North Queensland, which was, um, yeah, I agree with you. It was a pretty exciting uh, win for that project for sure. So. In addition to you know large scale, there were also record levels in household and commercial solar. How much was that? One one point one gig. One point one gig. So, how many coal fired power stations is that equivalent to? <laughs> <laughs> oh look, uh, look, it's probably about um, about half a big one, if that makes sense. So, okay. you know, we're certainly getting to the point where we're we're um, you know having a, a big sort of distributed sort of coal fired power station across the network, and I think that's. That's probably indicative of of um, the changes that we're seeing generally. Where you know, uh, you know, in the past we've had this system where you know energy's come from huge power station in the middle of nowhere, piped back to the cities, and now we're starting to see it, you know, distributed across people's rooftops and and you know further afield and that kind of thing. Um, just on the topic of these numbers, this one point one gig and point seven in the non small stuff. Th- these are nameplate capacities. Can you just run us through? That doesn't mean it generates that round the clock. It, it has a, a what's called a capacity factor, and that's different for wind and solar and for our average coal plants. Uh, can you just tell us what those figures are off the top of your head? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, look, I mean, obviously, people probably aware that uh, the sun doesn't shine at night, which makes it a bit tricky to sort of uh, produce solar power uh, during those periods, uh, and the wind obviously comes and goes depending on um, you know what, what what how much wind is blowing and what the mm-hmm. conditions are. Um, wind is sort of anywhere from kind of like about thirty five or point three five to um, to about forty percent or thereabouts. Solar mm-hmm. is around about twenty five percent, that kind of thing. Um, one thing that uh, is probably important to note about both wind and solar is that they're quite predictable. So uh, you know that the, the grid operator has a system where that you can actually predict what the wind's going to do, you know, the next day to a fairly high degree of accuracy. And as it gets mm. closer to the time, you know, that, that sort of sharpens up. So it's, it's really accurate. So they kind of know what's going to happen. So it's not this case of, oh, my God, the wind suddenly stopped blowing. You have to uh, emergency, like, you know, activate this. Implicitly, you're saying that as compared to coal plants when they Yeah, I mean, well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think actually, you know, in terms of what, what they call reliability um, and security, which are slightly, you know, different things, uh, you know, wind and solar tend to be pretty reliable in terms of doing, you know, what they're going to do, whereas often the old older coal plants will drop out unexpectedly. And, and, and do you have an average capacity factor for Australia's coal fleet? I, I, I couldn't actually honestly tell you exactly what the average one I, is. I know so. it does vary a lot between the old and the new ones. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously the, the newer ones are... But um, the one other fact that we should mention here is that solar in particular, uh, when it's generating, is typically at the time that the network needs it most, 
Um, and so it's actually deferring massive amounts of investment by not needing more peaking stations, isn't it? That's right. And particularly uh, a lot of industrial and, and commercial operations, you know, they, they need a lot of energy during the middle of the day. And so that aligns pretty well with, uh, you know, when solar's pumping out and so on. Yeah, and, and air conditioning particularly as well for, for office buildings and that kind of thing too. And another thing is that coal-fired power stations have to run 24 hours a day. They can't just ramp up and ramp down at any – it's slowly – yeah, coal, coal is, is definitely not a very flexible kind of generation and, uh, you know, certainly they have to kind of keep on chugging away. And what we often see is um, the way that the national energy market works, uh, electricity market, I should say, um, people bid in and then, that you know, the, the operator decides whether to take their power. And often overnight what you'll see is, uh, you know, coal-fired power stations bidding negative. So they'll say, we'll give you power at, you know, negative $3 a, a megawatt hour and, and uh, the grid operator will, will take that because, because they, that's can't, more they, can't, they can't shut down. winding down. Exactly, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and that's a real cost that no one seems to have to account for. There's, there's lots of real real costs about you know um, some of the more polluting forms of generation mm. which people don't account for. That's absolutely right. Look, and another fact from the report that really struck me, Mark, was that notwithstanding all this new capacity, 1.8 gig of new capacity coming online last year, the total proportion of energy from renewables last year dropped from <laughs> 17.3% to 17%. So can, can you explain that? Yeah, believe me, that wasn't uh, my favourite stat when I was looking through them and working out what to promote and so on uh, as, a, as a result of this report. Um, it was a very dry year for Australia's hydropower. So uh, basically, you know, that was the major issue. A lot of Australia's renewable energy still comes from hydro. Uh, some of these, as we mentioned, the Snowy Hydro plant earlier, that's 50 years old. There's the Hydro Tasmania network as well, and that's like 100 years old. So these are massive old kind of like systems that are still really important to what we do. Uh, they keep being upgraded. So they're in pretty good nick and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, basically a pretty dry year for the catchments for both of those areas. And it meant that the share of hydro dropped. um, And because that's quite a big proportion of our renewable energy still, um, that, uh, you know, overall, the the proportion just nicked back. I think it was 0.3% or something like that. So, you know, we talk about all these records. Um, We're starting to see a lot of wind and solar come online. So certainly, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020, that proportion is going to spike up pretty rapidly. but yeah, it was probably if, if that's the way you're measuring it for 2017. You know, it's probably not the, probably the best. Still, thing. I'm excited to actually see that overall the nation used 17 percent renewable energy. That that, mm. that is a start. That is a good um, good statistic. We're definitely getting there. There's no doubt about it. And I think you know we're a real real tipping point now where people are recognising that you know the future is clean energy. And I think that's a really powerful kind of idea, which has taken a while to to. Get so across. speaking of tipping points, then um, residential battery storage. Uh, you listed at 20,000 compared to 7,000 the previous year. So that's good and bad. It's a, it's a small <laughs> number, but it's, it's obviously showing phenomenal take-up compared to the previous year. And I think it's something like one in eight of new domestic installations are actually installing batteries now. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, um, it's not kind of happening as quickly as I think a lot of people in the industry would like. Uh, you know, it's still not quite at that sort of mum and dad, um, you know, I'm putting in a solar system. So, of course, it makes sense to put a battery in as well because it's not so cheap that it's a no-brainer yet. Mm. And I think that that's, that's the tipping point for that 
that technology is like. So the payoff terms, what is it, about five years for solar panels and nine or something for the batteries? Yeah, and I mean, the thing about batteries is unlike solar panels, which, you know, often will keep going for 25 years or so, uh-huh. um, you know, batteries are, the, the actual lifespan is is only probably just over a decade. So if it takes you, you know, almost that long to pay it off and then it's done, you know, it's it's a lot of people are kind of like, well, you mm-hmm. know, maybe I'll wait a little bit longer. And, and, and when they actually crunch the numbers, it's, it's, it's still like, yeah, maybe I'm not quite there yet, if you know what I mean. So um, it's still kind of at that um, early adopter, enthusiastic, you know, kind of uptake kind of phase. It's interesting you say that, and you'd be across this a lot more than I am, but I've been hearing a, a lot of solar installation companies saying, no, 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 you don't need batteries yet. We'll get you ready for them, mm. but we won't install them because they're not cost effective. The consumers want them. They, they will pay for them but they're actually being told to hold off. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if they're always being told to hold off as such. I think it's more of a case of how much money have you got to spend, you know, what's the most effective way to spend it. So, you know, certainly you can probably get a lot of bang for your buck in terms of solar these days. Prices have come down a lot. So, you know, if your budget is seven or 8000 um, it probably makes sense to put as many solar panels on your roof as you can rather than trying to work out how you can get a, a storage system in there as well. Um, and it makes sense to sort of have your, your system storage ready so that, you know, um, basically if there's a game-changing kind of like product that comes out, which seems to make sense, then you can bolt it on later and, um, you know. Okay. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Mark Bretherton from the Clean Energy Council. On, on that topic of batteries, from a system-wide perspective, is it actually better or worse if people have battery storage? Because I, I guess, you know, each time you charge up and discharge a battery, you're losing some power and it's less energy flowing into the grid. But yeah. on the other hand, it's dispatchable. On the other hand, it's dispatchable. So you, you've got those different factors coming into play. The dispatchability thing's pretty powerful. Um, it's something that people are looking at really closely. And, uh, you know, in, in, in the past, it's 10 years if you put a solar system on your roof, you know, you would use some of it, would, you know, if you had surplus power, it flowed into the grid and that's kind of it. But now, uh, like, there's products like smart inverters and so on that, that let the grid operator actually get better understanding of what's out there, you know, whether they can control it when they really need it um, and that kind of thing as well. So um, what we're seeing is, you know what we'll, what we'll see more of because this is what people are looking at is like these virtual power plant concepts where you have huge banks of batteries in one location um, where the grid operator when it's really hot or whatever and they need a bit of extra power they can draw on that and, and pay you for it uh, for, for that energy as well um, and that just you know is another way of helping to make the grid more stable without needing a huge kind of like dirty coal plant in the middle of nowhere chugging away. Or a huge utopia, Snowy Mountains too. <laughs> Indeed, our opinions still vary on that one, obviously. So. <laughs> you um, show in the report that 34% of renewables is made up of hydro, the same for wind power, and 20% is rooftop solar. But what I found was really interesting was a statistic about bioenergy, which is 10%. That's mm. quite high, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people don't really understand or, or track what's happening with bioenergy and maybe there's not enough talk about it. It's it's still an important you know, form of power, particularly for a lot of people who work in agriculture. So if you've got a lot of crop waste, you know, the sugarcane industry is a good example of that where there's a lot of, you know, once, you, once you're done with the processing, there's a lot of what they call bagasse um, mm-hmm. sort of waste that you can actually maximise um, and, you know, and, and use that to produce energy. And I mean, agriculture, uh, the, the industry is getting a lot smarter in terms of end-to-end, anything you've got left over at any point, you can you know work out a way to turn it into fertilizer or energy or, or whatever. And I think that's uh, a fantastic you know way that our farmers are sort of you know increasing the sustainability of what they do every day. Really, it's interesting to see 
um, with the statistics in the report, the variation between states in terms of the penetration of renewables. Um, do you do you know those stats off the top of your head, or we could? Uh, uh, Natalie, I probably struggle to to be a hundred percent precise in every single one of them. I know that. Um you know, Tasmania is, is absolutely in the pack, has done for a long time because most of their power comes from hydro. So they're kind of upwards of 90%. And most, they have been forever time. because it, that's exactly, all they've yeah. ever had is hydro. Exactly right. So which is why, you know, um, you know, the government's talking about turning into the battery of the nation because they have like masses of, of stored power that can be really helpful. Um, South Australia is, has done amazing things, uh, certainly over the last few years. Um, under, I so mean, they're at 45%? Yeah, that's right. So, um, and, and heading on, you know, I'd be very surprised if they didn't get at least half their power from renewable energy this year. They don't have any coal over there anymore. It's renewable energy and gas. Yay, South Australia. Yeah, um, I, I'd say that the next couple are probably uh, Victoria and New South Wales. Um, so well, I think it's 14% in WA, which surprised me. Oh, really? There you yeah. go. Yeah. yeah. D- WA... Um, uh, which I think, as, as we briefly discussed before this program, um, you know, because of the remote nature of where they are, like they build a lot of sort of microgrid things in the in the middle of um, nowhere, which sort of solar and, and batteries, rather than running a huge line of poles and wires out from the city to service someone in the middle of nowhere, it makes a lot of sense to to set people up with their own kind of solar and battery system and and um, let them go for it. Out and there. the laggards at the moment are New South Wales and Queensland. 11% in New South Wales and 8% in Queensland, but I understand lots is happening in Queensland. Queensland in particular is doing some pretty amazing things. And, you know, a couple of years ago, they set a really ambitious renewable energy target of hitting uh, half their power by 2030 from renewables. Uh, at the time, only 5% of, of their power actually came from renewables, even though they had a lot of rooftop solar um, around then. But uh, quite extraordinary, actually. And um, just this week, it was announced that more than 2,000 megawatts uh, will be coming online by the end of next year, which, you know, I know that megawatts doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but it's, it's the equivalent of about 800,000 homes um, being powered by renewables just in a couple of years. Uh, and that'll take them to, to more than 20% of their power um, by the end of next year, which is pretty exciting. Wow. Mark, could I just very briefly step back to that uh, Battery of the Nation concept? I know they're talking about massive investment. So at the moment, they generate the power with hydro and let the water run down the river so they'll have to capture some of it and be able to pump it back up. The energy to pump that back up, surely it's not coming from other hydro dams. Um, Is it um, piped across from Victoria or is it the new wind investment they're going to put in or are there times when they actually need river flows so they have to generate so they could then use that energy to pump water back up somewhere else? Or how does it work? It is actually a really, really good question. Um, I, I can't say that definitively uh, ex- exactly where it's going to come from. Um, I know a lot of the, the discussion is around better connection with the rest of the energy system, which means that wherever power is cheap, uh, you can then use that to, to pump stuff up the hill. And so often that'll be in the middle of the night if there's a lot of wind blowing mm-hmm. and a lot of energy is being used, uh, they can use that energy to, to pump the water up the hill and then when you absolutely need it and, and so on, it's uh, available as necessary. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, this is one of the things that's been recommended is, is you know, more of these kind of big large-scale storage plants that are yep. going to help to balance out Thanks. the rest of the system. So investment in renewable energy is now all the rage, as you're pointing out. It is so hot right now, Kay. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. We're hot here. Are the economics right now for that to persist, given that the rent's fully subscribed? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, you know, I think that there's, there's a, a deep philosophical question about what happens when the rent finishes. Uh, and I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, opinion varies a little bit. Some people seem to think, well, look, this, this is so cheap now, it's just going to keep being built. But um, there's a lot of 
the, the energy this is system. All the neg stuff too. Yeah, that, it, it all feeds into that, and it's it's a like the reality is that our energy system is pretty lumpy, uh, and so it's a very uneven playing field. And if yeah, as an example, I mean, you might you, know, you probably heard this already, but I can't say it enough. Is that most of our coal-fired power stations were built and funded by taxpayers? Like, forget subsidies, which is this argument and this rabbit hole you end up down half the time. Like. The, the coal-fired power stations, most of which we use, were entirely built and funded by taxpayers. And so that creates, you know, talk about a, a not-level playing field. I mean, that's what we're competing against as an industry. And so, uh, you know, some many of these are, are still here for decades to come. And so we need kind of two things. We need one, something that's going to pull more generation through uh, so that it's available when these, these plants retire so that we don't have huge spikes in power prices, which makes the whole job a lot harder. You can say um, that as often as you like, Mark. <laughs> but thanks very much. <laughs> So does the um, Clean Energy Council have a position on the NEG? Yeah, look, our, our positions, uh, it's kind of subtle uh, and uh, I, th- I think this is what makes it tricky is that um, we believe that the uh, it's got potential. So we believe that the mechanism that underpins it has potential. So um, the that's still being developed. We've encouraged the development of the process to see where we get to. Just so we can have any process. Well, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. It's it's at the moment is that or nothing, right? Um, I think you know if you look at the slider and and you know a lot of what drives uh, you know investment in things like renewable energy under that policy will be how ambitious the emissions reduction is. And at the moment, you know, we absolutely believe it's way too low. Uh, and so the, the combination of the two things isn't satisfactory. So I think you know if if you had moved that slider a lot further along the line and, and you know it's it's well beyond 26 percent by you know 2030 or whatever and much more up towards that kind of like 40 40 or more kind of thing um i think one, one of the prime arguments is that it's that's the low-hanging fruit it's easiest to do it in and you, if yeah, we don't yeah. do that we're making a massive problem for the rest of our industry that's 100 percent right because like uh, energy is one place where people like the the, the industry the industry itself whether that's you know your big sort of retailers like agl origin energy australia or you know the renewable energy industry or whoever um everyone is in agreement that we can do a lot more than that and that's um you know why aren't we taking advantage of that yeah, of course no, we should even the farmers union has come out now and said stop picking on us we're doing the best we can but it's much more expensive for us to do it and, and they're right i mean there's a lot of other industries which is a lot harder for them to reduce emissions whereas you know we've got an easy one it's the cheapest way you can do it just mm. to build more renewables with some storage totally. and certainly um, we've only got time for one more question but it, it would be really great just to hear your um your views on the integrated system plan that AEMO put out during the week? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty helpful, actually, I think. So uh, for the listeners out there, the integrated system plan is basically the market operator put it out. And what it is intended to do is to outline how you can get the most bang for buck for every dollar that you spend on new poles and wires, because uh, we're going to need a lot more of them. Uh, and it's a question of where do you build them and, and how much you spend on them. So um, they take a bit of a punt and say, you know, this is what we think is happening with, with energy uh, out for the next few decades and where we're going to get to. And therefore, you know, what do we need in terms of poles and wires? And while there was a lot of uh, media reporting that, um, you know, coal should be open for longer, what it actually says is, like, if you look at the medium and long term, it's unequivocal. Uh, renewable energy and storage is, is what's going to happen. Um, and it's purely based on cost. They look at the cost of, of what's happening, you know, new renewables versus new gas or new coal. Um, renewables is a no-brainer as far as they're concerned. And, uh, and so it looks at a few things. It says we should have better connection between the states uh, and enable sharing of power through those 
those things to help keep our costs low. And they also um, say that renewable energy zones where you have clusters of projects near where there's a good place to plug into the grid is, is what they think is the best way to do it in terms of um, making it efficient. So, yeah. Terrific. Thank no you. No coal. No coal. <laughs> so um, where can our listeners find out more about the Clean Energy Australia report, Mark? Yeah, you can uh, download it from our website, so www.cleanenergyaustralia. Uh, sorry, <laughs> let me try that again. <laughs> www.cleanenergycouncil.org.au and it's in the report section. You can download it for free. Clean Energy Council. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time today, Mark. Pleasure. Thanks, folks. Thanks, Mark. We've been speaking to Mark Bretherton from the Clean Energy Council. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we'll look forward to joining you again next week. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Time to Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines.